you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. Uh, we'll have the Scripture uh, behind me when we get to uh, reading it together. For the past uh, six months or so, if you've been around, you know we've been in the book of Acts working our way through this uh, incredible book on Sundays. And when we, when we look at Scripture that way, so we go through it kind of section by section, um, what we find is not only do we keep the text in its context, which is critical so we understand it rightly, but we also let the Holy Spirit set the agenda for our gathering. So it's not about uh, what I uh, saw on television the previous week. It's not about what's going on in the news, although we don't ignore that stuff. It's not about whatever hot button is on the elder's mind. Uh, we want the Holy Spirit to establish the agenda for our gathering, so we continue to kind of work our way through the text of Scripture. I was talking to a guy last week who uh, told me that his wife uh, kind of all of a sudden became passionately interested in uh, the history of ancestry, the ancestry of her, of their family. And so she'd become obsessed with finding out where the family was from and the origins of the family and, and who was part of the family and, and how people got into the family. And uh, it just became sort of an overwhelming obsession for her. Well, the book of Acts is a bit of an ancestry study of the church, the spiritual family of God, the origin of the church, the expansion of the church, um, who's part of the church and how people who are part of the church got into the church, and so on. Uh, the church from its humble beginnings in Jerusalem uh, to now, of course, in every corner of the world. And it's still expanding, as I mentioned to you in the first week of our study, even though the official title of this book is The Acts of the Apostles, it might, which is not an inspired title, it might better be called The Continuing Acts of the Risen Christ by His Spirit and Through His Apostles. And the apostle who takes up the most ink in the book of Acts, as you've seen if you've been with us, is the Apostle Paul. It's fair to say that he's one of the most controversial figures in all of history, not just the Bible, but in all of history. In every city that he enters, he goes in some 50 cities through at least three missionary journeys. Um, he creates conflict, preaching Jesus and causing riots and casting out demons and uh, demeaning the idols of the cities that he's in, which causes even more controversy and uh, works up the crowds into a lather. Everywhere he goes... Paul causes problems. He's that guy that you don't ever want to invite to a dinner party at your house because you know that someone will inevitably go out, storm out crying because this is just the way he works. Well, despite being such a lightning rod, Paul's life is really a testimony of faith in the midst of crisis, a testimony of hope and confidence in the work of God uh, despite repeated crises and even confidence in the face of judgment. And this is what we're going to see this morning uh, in the text. How and why we can have faith in the midst of our uncertainty, in the midst of our crises, how we can have confidence in the face of judgment. By the time we get to Acts 22, Paul's in prison and awaiting trial. And in fact, actually, Acts 22 through 26, five chapters really describes in detail this long trial sequence, complete with changes of venue and, and uh, a different uh, cast of characters. 
Uh, but Paul's longest, the longest part of that would be spent in Caesarea, where Paul would be held in Herod's praetorium for two years, awaiting sort of a final verdict to his trial. And there he would stand before Felix, the governor of Judea. And because this trial is really, again, it extends through five chapters. We've been kind of going through Acts one chapter at a time. But because this particular trial extends through five chapters, and there's a lot of repetition there, we're going to cover it in, in just two weeks. So we're going to look at really just two, two chapters uh, in, the, in these five weeks. So this morning, Acts 24, uh, let me begin by reading verse 1. Here reads the word of the Lord. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. Now, I want to pause there for a moment. In just about every church that I've served, there's been a group of people, sometimes a small group and sometimes a larger group, that God has rescued from a very legalistic upbringing or environment. Sometimes a legalistic church, sometimes a legalistic family, sometimes very legalistic parents. These folks grew up, you might say, under the burden of extra-biblical laws and extra-biblical requirements. And they were taught that this is how you please God, by keeping all of these rules and all of these traditions and all of these convictions. This is how you're made right with God. And they grew up in that environment where everyone around them was pretty much watching to make sure that they kept all the rules. And when they didn't keep the rules, or even if it appeared as though they hadn't kept the rules, someone was there to quickly tell them what they had done. And there was really a price to pay for that. Sometimes humiliation, sometimes shaming, sometimes even a public, quote, trial. This sort of setting where legalism reigns often destroys entire families. And I've seen it happen many, many times over the years. I've seen more damage done to families, and in particular young adults, by legalism than I think anything else in the church or perhaps even outside the church. Perhaps this is why Jesus condemns legalism and self-righteousness more than anything else in the Gospels. And by the way, the people that God rescues from that legalistic environment... um, which is really legalism, which is really a false gospel, which is no gospel at all, they're noticeable. I mean, they they stand out because they love grace, and they tend to be the most gracious people that you'll meet. Well, if you were a Jew living in Judea in, in the first century, which was still under Roman rule, there were always people around watching to make sure you kept all the rules, especially the religious rules. And on top of that, there was a governor in place by the name of Felix who uh, was a paranoid and insecure man who was constantly worried about an insurrection, a revolt. According to a couple of first century historians, second century historians, Josephus and Tacitus, Felix was born into slavery. He and his mother and brother were born uh, as slaves, but they were eventually granted their freedom by Claudius. And Felix then made the most of this new freedom, making the most of his opportunity, ascending all the way up, all the way up into the Roman government uh, to become a very powerful man. But as I mentioned, he was paranoid, he was insecure, he was a cruel man. And because he was so devious and he accepted all kinds of bribes and, and all kinds of underhanded dealings, it actually caused a spike in crime during his reign. So crime was really up 
while Felix was the governor. But if someone were accused of a crime, according to Roman law, the accused had the right to confront his accusers. And so naturally, Paul's been accused of a crime. We'll get more into that in just a minute. He's sent to Felix uh, for trial, but Felix had to wait until Paul's accusers were present before he could do anything. It took five days, we're told in verse 1, for Paul's accusers to arrive, to confront him to his face. And when they got there, this guy named Tertullus acted as the spokesperson for the offended party. And here's what he had to say, verses 2 through 9. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, accuse Paul, that is, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, speaking to Felix, And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. So he's employing, as you can see, there's some some royal flattery. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Now when we read this, what comes to mind, especially as we've been looking at Acts for so long, is um, it's the same old, tired approach employed by Paul's enemies, the same desperation, the same hyperbole, the same uh, misrepresentation, and the same lies. In fact, it's almost funny that that Paul's accusers have nothing really of substance to say at all. They have nothing uh, of which they can accuse him. They can't even say that he defiled the temple, verse 6. They can only say he tried to defile the temple, whatever that means. But they hate Paul so much that they want him dead. And they're willing to manufacture charges against him. But what else do we see? Every time this happens, we've seen it throughout this book, every time this happens, God does two things. He continues to do a work in Paul, strengthening Paul's faith, increasing Paul's joy in his heavenly Father, and God continues to advance the gospel as more and more people hear and believe. Here's our first point this morning. Despite mistreatment... False accusations and human rejection, God continues to work to accomplish His purposes in us and through us. And I love this, this divine reality. Even though the people around us may mischaracterize us, they may mock us, they may establish sort of caricatures of us in our views, they may attribute things to us we never said, label us all kinds of things, God is not thrown off by that. He's not surprised by that. He's not taken aback by that. His plans are not derailed by that. In fact, it is through that mistreatment of others that God is refining our faith, removing those idols from our hearts, and advancing His gospel. We see this not only in the Bible. We see it not only in biblical history. We see it in the rest of history as well. For example, the greatest and most influential uh, theologian ever to come from America, Jonathan Edwards, was fired after 23 years of faithfully preaching in Northampton, Massachusetts, where during his tenure he saw incredible 
spiritual and numerical growth in a place that was very spiritually dry. Edwards was fired on the basis of false and slanderous reports. Now, there was a lot into this if you've read the story, but fired on the basis of false and slanderous reports from those who had been disciplined from the church, those outside the church. So he ended up taking this little uh, pastorate in, among Native Americans in Stockbridge. It was really a mission work. And it was during that time of, you might call exile, that Edwards wrote some of the most influential works, the most important works in Christian history. God was at work in him and through him. Despite being, him being mistreated, uh, misrepresented, lied about, and so on. In a similar story, one that happened a few hundred years before that, after faithfully serving the church in Geneva, Switzerland for years, John Calvin was fired because of misrepresentation and political tension. But three years later, after he was exiled, after he was fired, and he had uh, moved on to Strasbourg, Germany, the folks in Geneva, they came back to him. They said, hey, we want you back. Will you come back and resume your role as our pastor and shepherd? Calvin did so and picked up on the very next verse where he had left off when he was fired. After the sermons he preached in both, after that, the sermons he preached in both places, Strasbourg and Geneva, would be translated uh, into hundreds of languages, hundreds of languages, and used to edify the church in ways that Calvin never imagined in his wildest dreams. Now, you want to talk about being misrepresented and falsely accused. Few men have in history, at least pastors, have gone through the sort of persecution, have had things said about them uh, like Calvin did. For example, Will uh, Durant, who was a 19th century historian, once wrote, But we shall always find it hard to love the man, Calvin, who darkened the human soul with the most absurd and blasphemous conception of God in all the long and honored history of nonsense. I mean, that's, that's pretty sharp criticism. You ever heard of the, um, the evangelist Jimmy Swaggart? Some of you have, right? My mom had a uh, Jimmy Swaggart leather-bound King James Bible. It was about that thick. And uh, she carried her. She needed, you had to have two hands to carry it. Wouldn't fit in her purse, definitely not in her pocket, barely, barely fit in our minivan. She would carry that thing around with two hands. Well, Swaggart, who had some real moral issues to answer for later in life, he once said this about Calvin. Calvin has, I believe, has, I believe caused untold millions of souls to be damned. Now, this is one of the nicest things that Swaggart said about Calvin. And listen, this is incredible stuff, but God actually used John Calvin to author the most influential book in all of history apart from the Bible, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. So when we're mistreated and maligned and misrepresented, that's often when God does His most powerful work in us and through us. And maybe that point is especially relevant for you this morning. Because you're a Christian or because of a personal conviction that you hold, you've been labeled all kinds of things. You've been falsely accused of being narrow-minded, a troublemaker, hateful, phobic. Your motives and character have been questioned. Maybe you've been called a bad wife, a bad husband, a bad neighbor, too judgy, a Jesus freak. Well, you can know this, that God is not up in heaven oblivious to what you're going through. God is not 
ignoring what you're going through. He's not too busy to care for you. To the contrary, God is doing something in you and through you that you can't even fathom at this moment. He's going to deepen your faith through this. He's going to increase your joy in Him through this. He's going to refine you and mold you and cause you to persevere. He's going to to dethrone the idols of your heart through this. He's going to bring about a greater dependence upon Him as you cling to Jesus. And He's going to work through you to advance the gospel. And by the way, here's the great irony in this as it relates to Acts 24. What Paul had been accused of being a plague, being a a troublemaker, causing riots, working up the, the whole region into a frenzy. What he had been accused of was not only not true, but actually through, through uh, Paul, God had done the opposite in the city. I mean, think about what God had done through the Apostle Paul, through his preaching ministry. Thousands had come to faith in Jesus. And what happens when a person comes to faith in Jesus? Well, yes, they're reconciled to God, forgiven of all their sins, regardless of what they've done in the past, made brand new creatures, indwelled by the Holy Spirit. But then what what do they do? Well, empowered by God, they love their neighbor better. They care for the people in their city more deeply. They speak up for the helpless and the powerless. They call out injustice where they see it. The best thing for a city, a region, or a nation is for people to come to faith in Jesus Christ because the gospel then creates a different kind of person and a different kind of community. Those who have been loved by God when they didn't deserve it, which is everyone who's been loved by God, they then love the undeserving. Those who have been forgiven, what do they do? They forgive. Those who have been rescued turn their attention to rescuing. Those who have been brought from death to life become proclaimers of the new life that is found in Jesus. You may recall about a year ago, we revised our vision statement after much uh, discussion and prayer at the elder level, and uh, here's, here's what it is. Our vision is to see God's kingdom advance through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing we want more as a church than to see the kingdom of God advance in every corner of the earth. And when we talked about this during our vision series early in in 21, um, I answered those very excellent and legitimate questions like, well, what about a vision for racial harmony? What about a vision for uh, the end of poverty and homelessness? What about a vision for the end of sex trafficking? What about a vision for stamping out injustice? What about a vision for the sanctity of human life and a, the protection of the preborn? And I answered all of those questions by saying, yes, absolutely we want those things. We want all of those things. And we're going to pray and work toward that end. But those things won't happen ultimately through public policy, political reform, better education, mandatory training, as good as some of those things are. The elimination of all of those evils that I just mentioned will only happen as more people are brought into the kingdom and live according to the king's commands. But as we've seen this morning, as we invite people into the kingdom through repentance and faith in Jesus, we will have people question our motives, condemn our character, say things about us. But it doesn't mean that God is not at work. He is. We'll see that even in this passage. Look at verses 10 through 21. And when the governor had nodded to him, 
to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not uh, more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. So Paul answers the accusations by Tertullus and his friends, and Paul says, actually, what I've been doing, it's actually verifiable. I mean, people have seen what I've been doing. People have witnessed what I've been doing. I've been in the temple worshiping, not trying to stir up a crowd, not fighting with my fellow Jews, not trying to be a troublemaker. I've been taking great pains, actually, to get along with everybody, he says. And then Paul gets to the heart of the problem. What's created such great strife, he says, is this. I've been teaching about the resurrection. Now, in this case, in this, at this very moment, he's not talking about the resurrection of Jesus, which actually was a focal point of Paul's preaching ministry. But here he's talking about the resurrection of each person to give an account before God of his or her life. Everything in the law and the prophets, Paul says, point to a time when God will restore all things, he will judge the earth, and every person, every person, will stand before God and answer to God for the things they've done. For the righteous, which we'll explain in just a moment, the resurrection signals the end of suffering, the entrance into eternal joy with God the Father. This is our hope. This is our assurance. This is our confidence when we lose someone we love. I was texting just last night with a member of our church who's having a funeral for his mother today. And he was rejoicing that his mother is with the Lord now. She put her faith in Christ and, and lived in faith in Christ. For the righteous, again, I'll talk more about that in just a second. This is our hope. But for the unrighteous, the resurrection spells eternal doom. Separation from God, characterized by endless suffering. And that notion, which Paul's not shied away from teaching, is what he says in verse 21, has caused all these problems and has brought him to trial. It's actually that same notion, the reality of a final judgment that really that awaits us all, that has throughout history incited anger and violent responses against any who talk about it, hold to it, or teach it. Here's our second point this morning. Concerning the teachings of Jesus, all of which we embrace and echo, perhaps the most offensive is the promise of inescapable judgment. I mean, Jesus said a lot of things that were offensive. Uh, Dave uh, Patrick, one of our elders, taught at our men's breakfast this morning. He did a beautiful job of explaining just how offensive the message of the gospel is. 
But I think nothing is perhaps more offensive and garners more hate and opposition than the reality of judgment. I know some of you really like history, and some of you don't, and that's okay too. Uh, I know for some of you, you, you really resonate with Winston Churchill, who, who famously said, those who fail to, to learn history are doomed to repeat it. So you say, we've got to study history. Some of you uh, perhaps resonate more with Sting, who was the, uh, the front man of the 80s group, uh, the police, who said, history will teach us nothing. So you're more on that side. But, but either way, um, whether you like history or don't, it would be impossible for you not to have at least heard about postmodernism. Uh, post is a word that just means after, like uh, post-game party. Modernity refer- refers to that area, era in history, the 19th century, 20th century that followed the age of enlightenment. So let me just let me give you just a three-minute history lesson and, and, and show how it relates to what we're talking about. The enlightenment, the enlightenment of the 18th century, was a time in Western history uh, characterized by this extreme confidence in human ability and ingenuity. It was a celebration of human reasoning and the brilliance of mankind, sometimes recalled, uh, called the, the triumph of science and rationalism. And the, 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 the mantra was, oh, the lengths to which mankind could go if he only believed in himself. So this is the enlightenment of the 18th century. And then you move from there into the, the, to modernism of the 19th and 20th centuries. And modernism basically rejected the ideas of the Enlightenment and took a much more sort of pessimistic view. Um, The enthusiasm over man's potential was diminished. With modernism also began a real suspicion about religion and the potentiality of man and so on. And then in the late 20th century, on into the 21st century, we we moved into what's now called post-modernity, post-modernism. I'm not going to bore you with all the developments. Some of you are thinking you're really pushing up against your three minutes here. Um, well, let me just say this. The philosophy of post-modernity, if we were to boil it down to a sentence or two, and if you're a historian, forgive me, I realize this is an oversimplification, but the philosophy of post-modernity might be best described as the end of all absolutes. Morality, right and wrong, Beauty, truth are all determined now by the individual. And so you can't tell me what's right and wrong for me. Only I can decide what's right and wrong for me. You can't tell me what's true. There's only my truth and your truth. So you hear people all the time talking about, have you you shared your truth? Well, the Bible says that there actually are absolute truths. There is a supreme authority And that authority is the God who made the heavens and the earth. Actually, right and wrong are not up to the individuals to decide. Right and wrong are determined by a holy and perfect creator and redeemer God. And every person who does not do exactly what that God has determined is right will be judged. Now, maybe you're thinking, I thought you just said that It would be legalism that turns people away from the faith, and legalism destroys families, and I did say that. That's true. But it's not legalism to point people to a holy and all-powerful God. It's not legalism to call people to repent and believe in Jesus. It's not even legalism to warn people about the judgment that every person will face. That's actually an essential part of the gospel message. See, unless we're crushed by the burden of the law, 
unless we're crushed by our own sinfulness and our own rebellion, unless we were made aware of, painfully and acutely aware of the bad news, then the good news will never really be that good to us. Unless we understand how broken we are, how sinful we are, how far we have fallen from God's perfect standard, then the good news will only be you know, mediocre news or, or perhaps decent advice. The bad news is we're all sinful people, born with a sin curse, separated from the God who made us, born enemies of God. I know Oprah says we're all good people at the core, but that's actually not true. But the good news is God has provided a way for salvation. And this is, this is what Paul will share with Felix and his wife, Drusilla. Look at verses 22 through 27. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, code name for those who follow Jesus, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some times, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. This is a guy who likes bribes, remember. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Now, first thing you note there is Drusilla is kind of an interesting name, isn't it? It's a bit of a cross between, in my estimation, Dracula and Cruella, neither of which were very beautiful people. Uh, Last weekend, Janine and I, as I mentioned, we were in Southern California with three of our kids, including our son and daughter-in-law, who are now expecting, and we're super excited about it. They're going to have their first child, and it's going to be our first grandchild, and we're just you know, over the moon about it. And we're sitting there and outside of San Diego one night, and, and, and I don't know how this came up. I didn't bring it up. Somehow the, the, issue, the, the topic of baby names came up. Probably not what you want your parents and your in-laws sort of weighing in on, uh, but this came up, and so we talked about a variety of names, and they like old school names. You know, they, they like these really old school names, and um, and I said, oh, that's interesting. Well, how about, so I said, my grandmother, um, her name was Suva, S-U-V-A. I said, what do you, what do you think about Suva? And uh, now I say that and you say, well, why, how could you make fun of somebody's name? Well, what we discovered that night was between 1920 and 2020, only two people in the world were given the name Suva. <laughs> Seriously, you can Google it. One of them was my grandmother. And so I said, look, if you want a name that's really unique... Two people in the world over 100 years, why don't you go with Suva? And they, you know, they, they did not like that at all, but um, they had other cooler names in mind. Um, and I, the thing is, I hadn't really started my sermon prep, but had I known that, I would have mentioned the name Drusilla. Drusilla is an interesting uh, name. Um, so while Paul's in custody, Felix, um, who I mentioned is a bit paranoid, and, uh, you know, but he's also a very curious person. He holds a private meeting with Paul and his wife, Drusilla. And what seems to be going on here is in the midst of all this 
controversy and what do we do with this apostle? What do we do with this man, Paul? Felix wants to get an outside opinion, a reliable, trustworthy opinion, so he brings his wife in. And all the ladies in here are thinking that Felix is a smart man. Well, Josephus, the first century historian that I mentioned a few moments ago, noted that Drusilla was a very beautiful woman. In fact, she was only about 20 years old at this time. She was already on her second marriage. And Felix, uh, who had two other wives at the time, he really esteemed Drusilla kind of more than his other wives. And so here's Paul with Drusilla and Felix. And what does Paul say? Verse 24, he was speaking with them about faith in Christ Jesus, reasoning about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. So what do we suppose that Paul was saying to them about righteousness? What could Paul have been teaching them about righteousness? Well, we don't really have to guess too much because um, it was during that two-year period, most people agree that Paul wrote the book of Philippians that would be sent off to the church at Philippi. And so we can imagine that Paul's writing and, he's, and he, gets, he gets interrupted to come meet with Felix and then again to come meet with Felix and Drusilla. And he shares with them what he put down in, on parchment to the church at Philippi. What we know is Philippians 3. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. But indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And then he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, look, I've given up everything gladly, and I would do it again so that I may know Christ, so that I may be found in Christ, so that I may be found righteous by God through a righteousness that's not my own, but one that comes by faith. And I mentioned to you before how much I love this verse and how this particular verse in Philippians may be my favorite verse in the whole Bible. And it's because this verse gives me hope. That when I fail, which I do all the time, and when I sin for the thousandth time in the same area, and when I say things I wish I could take back immediately, and when I do stupid things and think uh, wicked thoughts, it won't be my actions or my thoughts, good or bad, that determine my eternal destiny. It will be my position in Jesus Christ as one who has believed or rejected Jesus. But the central feature of Paul's argument is this, and this is our final point this morning. Through faith in Jesus, we can be confident in the face of God's looming judgment, clothed with the very righteousness of Christ. So when I am judged, when you are judged, when you stand before God, it won't be your actions that either condemn you or gain God's approval. Only one thing will secure for you a place in heaven, and that is faith in Jesus Christ and the righteousness that comes from believing. His righteousness, ours by faith. For those who have believed, those who have turned in repentant faith, trusted in Jesus Christ, they are cleansed and made new. They are seen by God as holy. When God looks at them, He sees them as perfect, blameless, and they will not experience the wrath of God 
but will be granted entrance into heaven. Now that righteousness by faith does lead to change in behavior. This is why Paul mentions three things to Felix and Drusilla. Righteousness, self-control, and judgment. Righteousness by faith produces self-control, which leads to, according to 1 Peter 1, patience and a steadfastness as judgment approaches. The more we try to work our way to God, the farther we get from God. Do you know that's true? The more we try to work our way to God, the farther we get from God. Because in doing so, we trust more and more in ourselves and our own efforts and our own ability and our own goodness and our own works. And we then become more and more less focused on Christ and His finished work. We talked about a few weeks ago, we're so desperately, we so desperately want to earn. We want to earn our salvation. We can't stand things for free. We want to contribute to it, but this salvation can only be received by faith. And this drives us crazy. It did with Felix and Drusilla. Verse 25 it says, Felix was alarmed by this. Paul said, go away. Go away. I don't want to hear any more about this right now. It would have been especially offensive to Felix's Jewish wife, Drusilla. Jesus' role as the exalted judge who is received by humble faith, the position before God, a right position for, before God secured only by faith in Jesus, would have been an affront to her personally and religiously. The fact there is no salvation except by believing in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to wrap, wrap up this morning just by saying this. You know, I mentioned in my first point that Despite mistreatment, false accusations, and human rejection, God continues to work to accomplish His purposes in us and through us. Well, there's no one in history of which that is more true than the person of Jesus Christ. He was mistreated, falsely accused, unfairly labeled, rejected by humans, even rejected by God the Father, so that we could be accepted. We fail every day. We fail every day to to live up to God's standard of perfection, but Jesus was perfect in every way. So that when we believe, we then are credited with His obedience. So when we receive Christ, we turn from our own self-salvation projects, our own attempt to save or justify ourselves. We turn in faith, in repentant faith to Jesus It's only then that we're received as a good and faithful son or daughter. Not because we've done it, but because Christ has been faithful on our behalf. It's a salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, will you give us this morning the ability to believe? Will you help us this morning those who are just trying so hard with a white-knuckled grip to hang on to their own salvation, those who, though they would never say it, really believe that if they could just do a little bit more, surely you would accept them. And even those this morning, Lord, who have committed sins maybe that nobody knows about, they're not worried about being too righteous. They're, They're afraid that they'll never actually truly be forgiven. Father, wherever we may be this morning in whatever false gospel we may be clinging to, whatever lie of the devil we may be believing. Lord, I pray that you would confront us with the beauty and the sufficiency 
and the power and the reality of your grace. Have mercy on us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.